You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. You know, from previous podcast guests, that I have a background in hockey. Well, I wasn't a real good hockey player, I was okay. My brothers were better, they were both goalies. Love hockey. And recently, Mario Lamoureux, who was one of my guests, great guy, great hockey coach, suggested I read this book. I read it, and it was so moving. It was an incredible story on so many fronts. I learned I learned more about hockey than I ever knew, particularly hockey up in Canada. I, I don't I don't know a lot about hockey in Canada. And I learned about a young man's struggle with cancer. And I learned about his brother who wrote the book and his love for his brother. And it was a very moving an inspirational book in many ways. And I can't tell you how delighted I am today to have the author of the book. I'm going to read the title before I introduce Wade. The Playbook of Todd Davison. His last shift through hockey, cancer, and the journey beyond himself. It is just my pleasure to welcome Wade Davison to Mike Seminary and friends. Wade, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Yeah. Thank you for writing the book. Um, it's, a, it's, it's really a very special book. My, here's going to be my first question. Did you ever think you were going to write a book, number one? And did you ever think you'd write a book about your brother? Well, for the first question, yes. I just wasn't quite sure what, what it was going to be about. And uh, regarding the second question, I just knew after Todd passed that his story was too powerful to die with him. So I really, I thought this was the perfect opportunity to tell his story and, and devote my time and energy to something I've wanted to do. And it, it, there was no more fitting story uh, than to tell Todd's story in this first book. Yeah. You know, there's something unique about the life of hockey players, especially when they're kids, the pretty much all in involvement of parents, especially if you want to be a competitive hockey player. I know a little bit about that, not from my hockey experience, because back then it was different. It was, I'm old enough to say it was really different. We didn't have a, a club hockey, didn't have a lot of tournaments away from home it wasn't quite the investment it is now where it's one like 12 months a year you drive through blizzards who cares about a blizzard it's just just different and i know from this perspective our daughter and you probably know this since you live in the bismarck mandan area was a synchronized figure skater with the Bismarck program, which happens to be one of the best in the country. They have one of the best synchronized figure skating programs in the country. They are top-notch competitors. And so I know what it's like to make that investment where you're traveling, you're right, you're driving through uh, blizzards that were, where they're even going to close the roads. You just have this investment and you are bound and determined. But I think it's a whole different level up in Canada. Tell me a little bit about you and your brother. Did all three of you play or just you and Todd? All three of us played growing up, yeah. Who's the who is the best hockey player? It's got to be Todd, hands down. He Okay. Was he the smallest? He was always the smallest and he was always the most talented. And we worked very hard, but he was he was not to be undone. He was going to go as hard as he could. <laughs> So tell, tell me about, as you, the three of you are growing up, you and Todd were separated by a little over a year, and you and your other brother, Joel, right? right. By about two or two and a half, maybe three. Did you play a lot together? How much of it was outdoors? Because that's all the only place I ever played. And then as you became, as you became aware that you guys were pretty good and competitive, 
that all-in kind of investment and sacrifice? That's a loaded question and a long one, so take as long as you need to answer it. So yeah, we were born in the mid-80s, and even though up in Winnipeg in Canada, there was a ton of outdoor, there was a ton, ton of indoor rinks, um, the majority of our hockey was spent playing outdoors from, from a young age. And so regarding playing together, yes, we played together. My earliest memories is all we were doing was playing hockey, whether that was on the outdoor rink or outside in the front street and front driveway or in our basement playing mini sticks. But we, that's all we wanted to do as young kids was play hockey. And luckily for me, I had Todd as my younger brother wanting to play as much as I did. So I had a built-in playing partner who was my brother uh, and we played as any chance we got after school, um, all evening long after homework was done or right before bed, whenever we could, we were playing hockey. And um, of, of course we were playing in indoor rinks on our club teams, but the majority of our time was spent uh, just playing by ourselves at the outdoor rink, which we call shinny or pickup hockey. We were there more than any other kid uh, that I knew. And then we just continued to play any chance we got. You became good enough to uh, be part of the Western Hockey League. By, by the way, was Joel as as accomplished as well? Was he a participant in the Western Hockey League as well? No, he was not. He played he played double um, A and high school hockey up in Manitoba. But he he was a good player. But he his interest was with other things beyond hockey. So we kind of paired right. off. Where Todd and I would be playing the majority of hockey, and Joel was still playing, but not quite the same dedication or commitment that Todd and I were. When I, when I was reading the book, I had never heard of the Western Hockey League because I didn't know much about the Canadian system, right? That's, for all practical purposes, one of the most significant feeders of talent into the National Hockey League. Is that a fair statement? Yes, that is correct. It's, so you guys were at that level. We were. And that, so in, in Canada, you typically play AAA hockey up until 15 or 16 years old, and then you look to transition to junior. And like I described in the book, for Canadian kids and for American kids, you have a very tough decision to make around the age of 16 years old, where you can play in that top tier Canadian Hockey League, uh, which is an umbrella league that covers the entire entirety of Canada, or you can hold off and try to get an American scholarship at an NCAA school. But as soon as you play a single game in that Canadian Hockey League, you are essentially uh, ineligible to get an American scholarship. So uh, we played AAA and we knew we were going to have a tough, tough decision to make. Uh, but we just did whatever we could to put ourselves in the best position to be able to take the next step, wherever that was. And for us, uh, just something lined up for us to play in the Western Hockey League together and forfeit our right for, a, for an American scholarship down the line. But as you've read in the story, things kind of lined up the way they were supposed to, I believe, in, in Todd and my, in our lives so that we could play together in that top league um, as teammates and as brothers, which was a very special thing. Yeah. Just a kind of a side question. With the introduction of NIL in college sports in the States and with the, um, the portal, that whole thing, which has changed college sports so much, where you can almost be a professional in some ways, that 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 policy that you just shared—if you played one game, you're you're ineligible—is that still the same, even with the changes in the states? As far as I know, everything is still the same. Okay, so it, it is. <clears throat> in my opinion, it's a rule that needs to be changed. Uh, decades ago, you could play in the Canadian Hockey League and then transition on to play. Uh, in the NCAA, but the last decades and as for as long as I can remember, it is it's a pretty rigid rule, and they don't like to see people. They don't like to give you the opportunity once you make that decision to stay up in Canada. Okay. You oh you and you mentioned did you say mini sticks in in the basement? Yes. Yes. What, what's sticks. that? So mini sticks. I'm sure you've seen them in passing, but they're just small plastic hockey sticks. And it's, you're essentially just playing on your knees on the floor with any kind of ball you can find. And you kind of create your own makeshift mini net and, you know, your opponent or opponents, uh, they do the same. And you're basically just going one-on-one -on -one or however many people there are playing uh, in a carpet floor setting. So okay. I, I, I joked about in the book, it, uh, we played mini sticks in the basement, but also any chance we were traveling, we play in the hotel hallway. And that was to the dismay of any non-hockey loving guests because it can get pretty rowdy 
um, in any, any given hotel hallway. So, but it's, I thought it might have been what my brother and I did in, in our basement. We didn't have a finished basement. You know, had the concrete floor, you know, concrete walls, pretty barren. So what we did, of course, is we just hit lots of slap shots into the wall. We tried to do it when mom and dad weren't home because they'd put it into it pretty quickly because we we had a lot of fun doing that and marked up the wall too, but that's a whole other story for another time. So you both started playing well, all three of you, but you and uh, your brother, Todd, played uh, hockey almost since you got out of diapers. And you were your older. When you learned that Todd, I'm, I'm going to skip up to that. We'll come back to some other fill in, in a minute. When you learned that Todd was diagnosed with cancer, how did that impact you when you first heard that? That was a complete shock that, that day because we knew there was something wrong with his shoulder. We knew he was in pain, but never did any of us think it was a cancerous tumor and not only a cancerous tumor but a a very severe type of cancer that uh, did not have great uh treatment rates so it was it was just a complete shock because on the outside he was still this young strong vibrant kid but on the inside invisibly he had a very serious situation brewing and the toughest thing for us was that we could see him and we could be supportive for his treatments but there was nothing we could do to help that tumor reduce itself or or clear up so Shock is probably the best word to describe it. And one of the reasons I asked the question early on was to go back to something you addressed in the book kind of later. And that's regarding, and this may be more prevalent in the sport of hockey than any other. Maybe football is close, but clearly not soccer, clearly not in basketball. Now all my friends that love soccer and basketball will hate me and quit listening. But in hockey, pain is part of the deal. And you get really good at hiding it because you don't want anyone to know for a variety of reasons. How long do you think he was hiding and masking how much he was hurting? I think it was the better part of a year and a half. So to give you some context, we we played in the Western Hockey League for the Regina Pats together, which we previously mentioned that league is the top Canadian junior league. And you are playing against the top pro prospects from North America, mainly Canada. And he was the smallest player in that league as the, one of the youngest players. So it's a league of 16 to 20 year olds. He made it as a five foot six, 160 pound, 16 year old. (laughs) And he was always battling against, you know, the knock on him was that he was too small. He'd never make it because he was too small or he wasn't strong enough or wasn't tough enough. So the fact that he made that league at that size was incredible in itself. But I think for him, even more so, he had to hide any sort of pain that he was going through, physical pain, because he didn't want that tagline uh, to follow him around. He wanted to break free and and show himself to be a competent, effective player, regardless of his size. Uh, So that that was a huge point for him. But he played that full season and was doing a great job to the best of his abilities. But in the spring of that year, he played in the Canada Games for team Manitoba. And that's where he left our, our Regina Pats team and went and played in the Canada games where every province and territory is represented. And he played against Sidney Crosby, who shouldn't need an introduction here head to head. And Todd had an incredible game. He scored a goal, got an assist. He got a penalty. Uh, They lost to Crosby's team in OT. Crosby had two goals and one assist, including the OT winner. But in that game, he took a very heavy hit and he felt a lot of pain in his shoulder. And so after that game, he, told my parents that he was experiencing pain. But when he returned to Regina and he passed that message along to, for the trainers, they, they very quickly dismissed him and said, this is just a hockey injury. Mm-hmm. It's something that is no big deal, you know, basically implying for him to fight through it or play through it because there was no broken bone on any imaging and there was no uh, strong indicator that something was wrong. So he very much played through that pain from the Canada games right and through the end of the following uh, following season. So, you know, between about March and the following June, when he was actually diagnosed, he was suffering in silence and dealing with that pain internally. Hmm. 
I got to read something before I ask you the next question, which is directly attached to what you were just sharing. And this is on page 57 of your book. And by the way, folks, you, you read the book. It's not just about hockey. It's not just about cancer. It's about love. It's about brotherly love. It, I mean, it's it, it's a it it's a riveting book. And sometimes it's so raw. Uh, you, it, it just really gets your attention. You got to read it. This is on page fifty-seven. In his mind, he was going to do whatever it took to rise. He was going to battle and skate as hard as he could to stick around for one more day. He knew the odds were against him, but he didn't care. He'd been playing against the odds his entire life. So that tees up what kind of internal toughness and what kind of character your brother Todd had. I'm going to come back to playing against the odds his entire life. You mentioned in the book, kind of going back to what you had just said, how there's this hiding, this masking in the sport. And it was kind of your opinion that that might be contributing to some players that struggle with forms of uh, mental health issues. And that's why I wanted to bring it up, because that is such a big discussion uh, across our country right now about the significance of mental health, how we don't do the best job of addressing it. So from your perspective, were you saying that maybe the thing that makes hockey so unique, being able to be tough and hiding it and keeping from people, also it could be a bit of an Achilles maybe? Do you, you're thinking that maybe we should change that a little bit? I think there needs, yes, I think there needs to be more deference and respect given to a player that's that's fighting through something that maybe doesn't quite know what it is. Even if that is a mental or emotional uh, issue that, that needs to come to the surface to let them feel as good as they could. And I, <clears throat> talking to, about Todd directly, obviously he hit his pain and he did it many times for his life. But after publishing the book and telling Todd's story, there were so many hockey players that played at very high levels, including pro that came to me and said, you know, I was, I was fighting through this injury and no one would listen to me, or I was so scared to report this injury because I was fearful of getting cut or released or traded or whatever it is. So it is obviously in other sports as well, but in hockey, especially I've noticed that players will be silent about their pain and they will hide it to their detriment just so they can you know, stick around and try to climb that ladder. And I think it'd be really nice if those same players, if we could just, you know, have more of a open relationship where they could be honest about what's happening in their bodies or their minds and address it and allow them to become stronger and better players that way, as opposed to everyone playing in fear and trying to just fight through it by themselves, which never ends well. Mm. And when you wrote that he had been playing against the odds and entire life for all practical purposes were you mainly referencing his size and stature compared to the majority of the players he would compete against yes and he so he was always uh and and one of the name nicknames given to him in regina was itty bitty but from a very young age he was always the smallest player on the ice and then because he was so good he was being age advanced to my age level and so not only was he the smallest player in his own age group he was playing up a year and which made him even smaller. And he he always had, especially from the scouts looking at him, the junior scouts and, and the scouts for the next levels, they always knocked him for his size. And uh, it was just something he always had to fight against. And, you know, when he finally was one of the best players on the ice or, you know, one most valuable player or player of the game, he had to earn the respect of of people watching, but it was not given to him freely. And he was always he was always playing against the odds with his size. I, I, if you put this in the book, I don't remember it. So if I ask a question that's in the book, and uh, my apologies. My sense was, as I read the book, is he didn't talk much about that. It's just a fact of life. He dealt with it and dealt with it his way. Is that is that kind of accurate? That is that is very accurate. He would never acknowledge that he was the smallest player. I think he knew inside 
um, objectively he was the smallest player, but he never he never factored into who he was as a player and how good of a player he could be. So he, regardless of what anyone said about his size, he was he was like the small dog who thought he was a big dog and was going to play like a big dog, and he did not care what people's criticisms were about that. He was going to fight through. And did he ever say anything about it for all practical purposes? Not that I meant never. So, 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 so then the guys that would use that to try to disarm him or distract him, the fact that he just ignore it must have just drove them nuts. And he was sometimes a better player than them anyway. Yes, he was more often not the better player, and he was he was so feisty and fearless. Uh, they could say whatever they wanted to him, and he would just out outplay them and oftentimes. Uh, you know, be tougher than them with, with how he played his game. You were both very good hockey players, and if and you share images of newspaper stories where sports writers were writing about the brothers that were very, very uh, accomplished. Did that make you targets when you'd get some press exposure? Did that make you targets sometimes? I, I think it did. Uh, having an article written about you is not it's not a common, not common when you're growing up as a young hockey player. Uh, I found out in the years after we played, I knew that we always had tension and turmoil with the other teams and opponents, but I found out after years after we played that we were very hated brotherly duo on a lot of teams based on the way we played. <laughs> so I, I, you know, perhaps it was because some of the attention that we were given, but I think it was more so just how we played the style of hockey that we played and, and um, year after year, it's how we showed up to play like that. Mm. Who was more of a scrapper, you or Todd? Uh, I would, I was, I would say I was a more physical player than he was. I had, you know, probably forty pounds on him for the majority of our our lives and several inches. And I was, I was kind of more of a grinder player, where he was a feisty player, but he was more of a skill player. He was a very good skater. Uh, he had great moves and great shot. So he was always top of the list for points in terms of you know his league standings or team standings but and he also mixed in a bunch of penalty minutes for the way he played but I was more of that uh, physical player that I knew I had to be a physical grinder type power forward player if I was going to move on levels he could survive based on skill and I was going to have to survive in a different style well, I did this once to defend my brother because of something that somebody did and that's getting in a scrap, getting into a fight. Guy asked me to do you want to drop gloves. I thought, why would I drop his my gloves? It just popped him. Why why would I take the time? So were there times in defense of your brother you got into a scrape or two? Yes. So we, we were line mates <laughs> growing up and, and there was always there was always that protective element that I'd I'd be playing, especially if we're on the ice at the same time. And then when we moved on to play in junior, you could actually fight three times any given game before you got kicked out. There was, of course, some rules and exceptions to that. Uh, so there was a few times in our season with Regina that in 2002 and 2003 where fights happened, mainly for us sticking up for each other. But then one particular event, uh, the next year in Moose Jaw, this is once his shoulder injury was already in play and he was feeling weaker and it, something wasn't right. Uh, there was a line brawl, which means that every player on the ice essentially breaks out and starts fighting each other. And he was on the ice against a very big opponent. And I was on the bench and he was getting beat up quite badly in Moose Shaw, Saskatchewan. My mom was in the crowd. She drove out to watch the game and he, he thought it was just not doing well. He was getting beat up very badly. So in that one particular case, I actually jumped the bench and tried to you know, save Todd or help him out in his fight and save him from a further beatdown. It ended up resulting in a, in a five-game suspension and uh, eventually the release from the team. There's there's some more factors to that, but uh, definitely always standing up for each other. And, and there was more than a few times where I stood up for him and, and then ended up getting in a fight for him. Good for you. <laughs> that's, what, that's what brotherly love is all about. I'm back to the – I'm going to make sure I pronounce this correctly because I had never heard of it until I read your book, synovial sarcoma. And it's a, it's a form of, it's, you said it's very, very rare, and that it's a form of cancer that attacks soft tissue. And that's what he had, was it his left? 
was his left or the right? Yes, his left shoulder. His left shoulder. I I, I got to go right to this thing that you 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 address where one time it was his collarbone or scapula that was that popped yes. out. Yes, his collarbone out of the skin. Yes. He must have been really good at masking how much pain he was in. He was, right? So tell us a little bit about that. So part of his treatments were, it was very intense chemotherapy, which the the oncologist said to him very early on, we we are going to give you the most aggressive treatments we can. And if this doesn't work, we are not sure what we're going to do. And so he had several aggressive treatments of, of that type of chemotherapy. Then he had radiation. And then when all that was not working, he had to have a very significant operation that removed part of his scapula and, and changed his arm and shoulder forever. And then part of dealing with the healing of that was that the his collarbone ended up starting to break through and put pressure on the skin and actually came right through. And to any and whenever that happened, it was, of course, devastating for him to see himself in the mirror like that. But he needed to go in for another operation and have the collarbone cut shorter and i'm sure he was devastated internally but he would not let those types of things dictate how he was going to live his life or dictate his attitude so it was actually very incredible to see what he was going through and how he took the hits against him and just kept on on living the best he could so it was uh it was very tough to watch and to see his body take that kind of take that kind of force and and change but for him it was just something that was happening that he had to deal with the best he could and he played at a very competitive level for a year and a half, almost two years after the diagnosis. I so yes, I to back it up for a second. He he was basically played a full season and a half when he started feeling the pain, and then he was diagnosed. My mom was an MRI tech. She brought him into the hospital, and she was the one that actually found the tumor in the shoulder through the imaging. Uh, and then after he was diagnosed, he had to take a break, a several month break for those chemo treatments and radiation. And after that, he had a small gap where basically the doctors were saying, we're not sure what, what this is doing inside your body. Um, we're going to schedule this major surgery out several months. And during that time, I don't think they had necessarily approved it, but during that time, he fought his way to come back and play junior hockey again and between his radiation treatments and that major surgery. So it was it was a, a couple month um, gap where he did everything he could to get himself back to playing condition and playing shape, which included running up and down tens and tens of flights of stairs in, da- in a downtown Toronto hotel and doing everything he could to get back in shape to to play. And so after after that initial bout of treatment, he came back and made a miraculous comeback to the Alberta Junior Hockey League, where he played a couple months. But then he got that message basically saying. The cancer's not going away. It's getting worse. We need to have this operation, and this will be the end of your playing career for good. Where in that timeline did one of the medical professionals tell him, go home and prepare to die? Ooh. Um, so after he had already, they, they gave him very dire news early on, and they were, and he was very upset by that. He was angry by it because he didn't want whether it was a well-respected doctor or someone else, he didn't want someone dictating this is going to be the end of your life. But after he came back and returned to hockey, he had those, he had major surgeries, major surgery that essentially deformed his arm and shoulder. And then he needed those subsequent surgeries through it. And I believe it was the following September. So it was, it was, if he was diagnosed in June of 2003, I believe. Uh, I might be getting those years mixed up. June, or, June 2003 or 2004, it would have been the September of 2006 where he was actually told, "You, there's nothing more we can do. Go home and prepare to die. And so three months later is when he actually died. So he had that three-month gap of that terrible news and then just waiting and living day by day. You got to go back to your mom for, for a second, Wade. In the book, you talked about, you know, in Canada, there's 
you know, universal nationalized healthcare, whatever, whatever it's called, and uh, which is wonderful, but there are some drawbacks. And one of them, as you mentioned, was the incredible wait times for certain types of uh, procedures. And this would have been one of them. It's almost a God thing that that's what your mom's background was, because it could have been months, possibly, before he could have gotten in for an MRI, because I think that's one of the procedures that the the wait list is long in most places in Canada. Yeah, so something like a if you have knee pain or shoulder pain, you are not going to get in for an MRI the next day or next week. Oftentimes, you're put on a very long wait list. And the fact that our mom got him in, which was totally out of protocol, she had to ask permission from her supervisor to get him in during a, a previous canceled appointment and found it probably gave him uh, a lot of extra time and the quality of life that he was given was was extended because I can't see him going into an MRI without her for another year, possibly if if, if it ever would have got caught. I think he would have just continued to have that excruciating shoulder pain until it was far too late. Um, so the fact that she caught it and the way she caught it was, it was a God thing and it was incredible. And especially the fact that MRI technology back in those years was not, not a super common thing for in Canada. It was a very, it was newer program and typically you needed some sort of severe injury or severe ailment to you know, be put on that list to, to get that kind of scan. So the fact that she was an MRI, she was an x-ray tech for 25 plus years and then challenged herself and went back to school to be an MRI tech and brought him in. Uh, I think that's an, it's an incredible connection, incredible synchronicity that was obviously incredibly painful to her when she saw it in the scanner, but looking at the big picture, she saved him a lot of time and, and probably really enhanced his quality of life for several months, if not years. You make reference to one of the qualities Todd uh, possessed, even as a fairly young fellow, was leadership and leadership in a way where you know, a lot of really good athletes, well, a lot of people that are really talented at something can have that tendency to be somewhat self-centered. He was clearly others centered. And he, early in his career, fairly early, I don't can't remember the age, he was awarded an MVP. And he went into the locker room and he went to one of his teammates and gave him the trophy. Where, where did that come from? Was that your mom? Was it your dad? Was it uniquely Todd? You know, I, I think our parents all always try to get us to think of others and how our actions or inaction could affect someone. Um, so it was instilled in us, but I think that was definitely a Todd thing because a lot of players and, and for context there, it was in a tournament setting, typically they give out a player of the game. And as soon as that player, any given player wins the award, you don't typically get it, get it any in any consecutive games. And Todd got player of the game in three consecutive games. And in the third game, uh, he didn't feel he deserved it. So it was like that internal compass of, I didn't earn this, someone else earned it, and I'm going to pass on the credit to whoever deserved it more than I did. So he held himself to a standard that few would. I think a lot of people would just, you know, accept that award and not say anything, but he knew uh, that someone else deserved it more than he did. And being a leader of that team he was on, he was the captain at the time, being, being that leader, I think he wanted to show his other teammates that he's seeing their effort that they're putting on and that he's not going to take all the credit to himself. Um, even if some you know external person chose him to be the player of the game, he was going to give it to whoever he thought was was most deserving of it. And just it was that it was that sense of independence um, and and authenticity that I think separated him from a lot of people. So I think some of it wasn't still from our parents, but a lot of it was just natural to him and, and how he saw the world and how he saw others, you know, interacting with them. I, I bring it up because you shared a quote. That Todd maybe shared with you, or I'm, I'm not, I don't remember exactly why you referenced it in the book, 
but hockey uh, was or is my life, plain and simple. But it was much more than that because people were so important to him. In the, the example you just shared, and then in the book, when he's battling mightily with cancer and the treatments and the god-awful side effects from, from those, including the eye popping out, if you can address that if you want, he's coaching young hockey players. And I, th- I don't know that any of them knew what he was dealing with. That, that just was not part of the program for him. That, that's a remarkable, that's a remarkably gifted, others-centered type of leader and coach, I think. His, his pain, he, didn't, he never wanted to make his problems or his pain the burden of other people. And so he was more concerned about, instead of his own selfish aims, he, he was more concerned about how his situation might make someone else feel. And if it's going to make them feel pain or sadness or hurt, he did not want that, that to be transferred onto someone. And I think he needed to know that he was loved and supported, which, which he did. But I think he could have been a little easier on himself and, and uh, allow his pain to be shared and recognized. But he was so concerned about how it might negatively affect others, including the kids that, that you mentioned he was coaching. He didn't want them to be dealing with what he was going through. And so in those last months when he was still coaching and, and coaching at a very high level where he was at the rink every single day, I'm sure he knew that the, the players, the young players who were between 15 and 16 years old, I think they knew that he was going through cancer treatments and knew that he was suffering, but he never wanted to, to give them any more weight than, than he, than they kind of the bare minimum. So he didn't want to affect them or, or put any sort of burden on them. And he, he wore it uh, and carried it by himself. Wade, how did this impact you as a brother, uh, a fellow hockey player, as your brother's diagnosis, Todd's diagnosed, and it rapidly advances? How was it impacting you? Well, you know, it was the general way to describe it is it was tough because here we are side by side doing everything together. And then all of a sudden, that one year when he was diagnosed, I went on back to, to Western Canada to, to still play junior hockey. And he was sitting on the front step, left helpless to whatever treatments were awaiting him. And then I would have to be getting updates from either him or my parents. And it was, I was, you know, several thousand miles away or, or a couple thousand miles miles away from him. It was just a very tough thing to know that he was suffering and know that there was nothing really I could do to, to physically help him. And seeing him, this strong young kid just slowly start to diminish, it was just really sad. It, it, there was He had so much potential for what he could have done in, in his life. And he did a ton of stuff and incredible uh, achieved some incredible things before he passed. But it was more so just sad and tough to watch him in that weakened state and getting weaker by the day until he eventually died. I don't follow hockey like I used to, you know, for a variety of reasons. So, so I, I don't know by name some of the great hockey players of the day and really maybe the last 10 years, maybe 15 years. So I hope what I'm about to say is still accurate. Based on my hockey knowledge. This guy's in the top five, maybe 10 greatest hockey players of all time. I think. Maybe even in the top three, I don't know. Mario Lemieux, who I, I'm, I'm saying he's in the top greatest five or ten of all time. I, I might be wrong. What do I know? Calls your brother. What, what was that like? If, this is secondhand, but it was an incredible moment for Todd because he was in. He was. It was during his chemotherapy treatments, and he was in a very tough place where he was getting beat down by 
the chemicals that were being pumped into his body. And he was in the room struggling and suffering. And then Mario Lemieux had gotten his cell phone number. Mario Lemieux being a cancer survivor himself had gotten Todd's cell phone number and just knew the power of a phone, what a phone call could do to cheer someone up and power them up. So Todd was sleeping, his cell phone rang. It said Mario Lemieux on the caller ID. And my dad was in the hospital room beside him and, and saw this name on the phone and was in disbelief that it that was happening. So he, tr- he tried to wake Todd up. And by the time Todd, he woke Todd up, Todd saw he missed a call. And anyways, there was a beautiful voicemail left for Todd. He gave Mario a call back and they chatted for however long. And after that call, Todd's spirits were just completely brightened up. And I think it was very impressive that such a accomplished player, and I would agree with you that he was one of the best of all time. He was my favorite player growing up. But a guy like that could just care enough to spend a couple of minutes making a phone call to someone who needed it. Todd described it as that. It was awesome to him. That's about as simply as it, as it gets. It was such a beautiful burst of energy that Mario shared with them. What other things were breaking for him? I mean, you, you talked about the collarbone, the his eye popping out of the side, because again, this impacts the soft tissue, which helps maintain bone integrity. And once you lose that, you're incredibly fragile and suspect to having bones break. So he, the cancer started really spreading um, in his last year and it spread to his lungs. He had to have a major operation where they had to deflate each lung one at a time and remove tumors from it. And, but it also, it was spreading to his bones and his lower back and his back. So, you know, there was one morning where he woke up and he was supposed to be coaching a hockey game. And my mom and older brother heard this tremendous crack from the back room and followed by a scream of pain from Todd. And they rushed back there. And of course he's scrambling to get himself up and get himself dressed, but they figured that, and based on subsequent scans, they figured that uh, bones in his back were breaking bones in his in his lower back that supported all his weight were breaking and giving out and cracking and it, it was it was a lot i couldn't tell you all the bones that were breaking but you know i referenced there was the orbital bone that broke where his eye popped through so he you know shoulders mangled his eyes popping through towards the end his lower backs having broken bones um i couldn't give you a full list but it was a lot was he 22 he was 20 when he passed. 20 when, 20 when he passed. Uh, he started, I don't know if the correct word is a foundation or nonprofit called Believe in the Goal. Is that still running? Is it still in existence? It, you know, our family kept it up for about five years after Todd passed, but it's since been shut down for many reasons, including... Um, the fact that this was this was a foundation made up of basically the best NHL players or top players from the Manitoba area that were brought together for a charity all-star hockey game in the summer that raised money to give back to mainly adolescents that were also dealing with cancer. Todd was, despite all the pain he was going through, he saw the suffering of younger kids in the hospital rooms and he wanted to make their stay and their families stay more comfortable. So the proceeds were all going to that. But um he was very much just concerned with the pain of others that that, that were that was was happening there. But he started that that foundation um, with the best players, and he brought thousands of people together to raise money for for that aim. But after several years have passed by, the young players had families; they had limited time in the summer. So we, our family, beyond a golf tournament that we put on with the charity game, we pulled back on the efforts and um, left it behind because it was it was it was very tough. It was a beautiful foundation. But it was also very tough to go back year after year and experience that pain. And I think between giving the players some time and, and respecting their their time and, and personal lives in the summer, I think our family and the friends that were involved in that foundation needed a little bit of a break to step back um, after those five years. So it was a beautiful organization that raised well over $300,000 Canadian. It, it led to sending young cancer patients on dream trips to go see their favorite NHL players in whatever given city around North America. And it, um, there was a blanket program where nice fleece blankets were delivered, hand delivered to these young patients by NHL players. And then also certain custom rooms in the hotels were built where, um, all the necessary materials for the walls and that needed to be brought in were brought in with 
beautiful entertainment systems so the kids could play their video games and their parents could have nice reclining uh, futons to sleep on, that kind of thing. But it was a it was about a five or six year foundation in total, all sparked by Todd in the months before he passed. You eventually head south. You end up in Grand Forks. Is is that undergrad and law school? That was just law school. Okay. Had you been in the Ralph any time prior to your law school days in Grand Forks? I actually had not. And the only time I was close to the Ralph is when Todd was still alive. We made a trip down to Fargo. And on our way back to Winnipeg, we stopped in Grand Forks and we were just, we knew of the Ralph and we've heard of it, but we just walked on the outside and, and took a look at the building um, from an outside view. The doors were locked. So we couldn't get in the summer, but it was, I, I was absolutely blown away when I first saw that building when I came to law school at UND. And it was an honor to be able to play in it, even though it was intramurals uh, on, you know, on any given Wednesday night, it was such an incredible ring to be in and be a part of. <laughs> but when I, I went to school there two years. And had an inter- I was on the intramural team. We played in the old Ralph, the original Ralph. The Ralph that you have experienced, how does that stack up against the places you've played in when you were playing hockey? I don't think it can compare. The Ralph is a gem in itself, and it is, it is such a gorgeous rink. I've seen a lot of beautiful rinks around the world, and that is definitely right up there with one of the best. So it's absolutely incredible that that place exists in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and it's it's a palace of hockey. I, I have to share this with you because I think you'll appreciate it. And anybody that's listening, I mean, and by the way, folks, again, the, the book is his last shift. It has thirty three chapters, and it broken into sections and here are the titles of the sections that's the pregame first period second period third period sudden death over time and post game it's it's a great book back to the ralph i have two brother-in-laws that played football at ndsu my wife went to ndsu Daughter went to NDSU. I went two years in Grand Forks at UND, didn't graduate from there. Oldest daughter graduated from there. But so there's a lot of bison stuff in, in our life, right? One day at Christmas, we're home visiting uh, my mother. And my sister and brother-in-law, who, who live in Hastings, still do. And he was a football player, really good football player for NDSU, as was my other brother-in-law. They show up, and the boys have UND Sioux hockey jerseys on. And I look at Marty. I said, Marty, what's up with that? He said, well, our neighbor is Mark Chorney. And at the time, Taylor Chorney is playing for UND. So, uh, uh, by the way, folks, if you don't know that, uh, Mark was, I don't know, in the NHL 15, 16, 17 years or something, and Taylor, if he's still in, was in five, six, seven or something. So the Chorney UND Sioux hockey influence on the uh, Marty and Sarah C. family, who are big bison people, it worked. And both boys played hockey, by the way, in in Minnesota. If you had a magic wand, you you could wave over the heads of young aspiring, young, I'm going to say, you know, seven, eight, nine, up to 10, maybe, year old kids that want to play hockey. And they think, it, and their parents think, they have some real skills. What's the one thing you want them to know about what's in front of them? Should they pursue that? Ooh, um, I think <clears throat> they, will, they will have moments playing an incredible sport with teammates, uh, and have some of the most intense in, intense games 
and and just experiences with teammates um, that they will really cherish for the rest of their lives. And I think if I'm understanding your, your question properly of what can they look forward to, it's more so just playing, playing a beautiful game uh, at a very high level, which is loved by fans and which they can dedicate their loves, their lives to it and, and love, love what they're doing as they're playing it. So it's, it's more so the feelings I, w- I would be excited for where they would go and excited for their experiences of everything from training camp to, you know, a packed building, watching a game on a Friday night to playoffs to just the moments of, of away from the rink with their friends, with their friends and teammates and, and coaches. So it's more so just a lifestyle that is very cool in my opinion, and that um, can really be fulfilling through just hard work and experience with hockey. You know, and then on that note, I would just say you as as good as any player can be, hockey is a game that's supposed to be fun. And to remember that if you're gonna love it and you're gonna excel at it and, and keep on pursuing it, you you have to keep the fun in hockey, regardless of what's happening for you. Mm-hmm. So I think when there's a true love of what you're doing and there's there's fun being had while you're playing, that's that's a really great recipe for success, however far the game takes you. I'm going to ask you another one. Normally I ask just one of those kind of questions, but this just seems appropriate. So another magic wand, and you're waving it over the heads, sadly, of people that are going to have a diagnosis with regards to their health that doesn't look like it has a, a good horizon. It doesn't have a good outcome. And you've lived this now with your brother and your family has lived it. What's the one thing you want them to know about what's in front of them? Well, they will have some very tough, challenging times. But the biggest thing is just appreciating the little moments and the day-to-day things and day-to-day relationships that they have in front of them right now and being thankful for those moments, however they come. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have, for example, we have a a next-door neighbor beautiful lady in her in her late 60s i believe who's been diagnosed as being terminal with cancer and she was given three months back in i believe september october and she's still around and every time i pass by i ask how they're doing and they're saying it's another day and so the fact that they're just acknowledging that they're not sure how long she's going to be around any of those people that would have a tough diagnosis in their families you you do not know how long you're going to be around and it's just what do we have right now in this moment and how can we make the best of it and, you know, give ourselves one more day. That's really all I can pass on there. By the way, I, I again, I love your book. I, I really appreciated, while it isn't a book about faith much, you worked it in, in terms of the importance, especially how Todd was seeing what was happening in his life. And I, I really appreciate how, how you address that. Are you skating? Are you playing hockey at all now? These days I'm skating, but as a coach, I'm, I'm coaching with Mario Lamoureux for the legacy, uh, the varsity high school Sabres. So I'm, I'm on the ice uh, five days a week for practice. And then we're at the rink six days of seven and I'm not skating uh, in men's league or anything right now. I'm taking a nice break from, from the rink on Sundays, but I'm at the rink every day coaching. With Mario and the t- team, not with L- Lamarill Hockey. You're helping with the team. I, I, during the winter, it's Legacy High School. And then yep. during the spring season, I also coach with one of Mario's Dakota Warrior teams. Oh, cool. So, cool. Um, He's a great guy. He really is. He's, yeah. He is uh, really a, a great guy. What else should we know about? you and what you're doing in, in, in your life and kind of where you're going, Wade? Um, well, I'm, I'm an attorney. I've been mainly working as a trial attorney the last several, year, several years. I've since gone in-house working for a North Dakota energy company. But beyond uh, work, the biggest thing in my life right now is my wife is pregnant. She's seven months pregnant with a, a little baby boy coming due in mid-September. So we are excited for that which will be our first baby and that's that's really the main focus of of my oh. days right now is hey um, congratulations thank you did you ever think you were going to be living in the bismarck mandan area um if you would ask me 10 years ago i would have said absolutely not and yeah. 
you know, now here we are and it's, it's the perfect spot. We were previously down in San Diego for four years and we just moved back last September and knowing that this community is a great community, that it's, it's a great place to raise kids. Uh, we have family here on my wife's side and a lot of great friends and family just around to share our days with. So, uh, I did not foresee this, but I'm definitely very happy that I'm I'm here now in this moment. Man, winters in San Diego are unbearable. They're just awful, aren't they? It was <laughs> when it dips down to the 50s there, and we were getting freaking cold. It was it was a tough winter back. I'll say that when it was we got just hammered with blizzards starting in Mar- in November, and it was a very tough winter to to come back from California to North Dakota. Here's my last question. When we were kids, every once in a while, somebody would stick their tongue on some piece of metal because somebody dared them, or they were just really dumb, or both. And I'm not saying this from experience necessarily. I bet the guys in Canada are a lot smarter. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if we're necessarily smarter, but we've we, that that's been around for a long time. I can still remember being at the bus stop at probably seven years old, <laughs> touching our tongue to the metal post and ripping off as quickly as we could. So we are not any smarter up there. We are we're <laughs> just as curious. Um, it is. I can say this: it does get colder up there as as you go from Fargo to Grand Forks. It gets you can feel the temperature drop, and up to Winnipeg, it is even chillier. So. Uh, we've been warned about the metal pole and or the, the metals with the tongue, and we've we've tried a little bit. Luckily, no bad injuries. <laughs> Where's the best place for folks to find your book, Wade? I, I think the simplest and best would be on Amazon, um, okay. and there's also several other online retailers that that sell it. For example, Barnes and Noble um, online will sell it, but Amazon's probably the easiest place. And then. Um, if you're looking for an audiobook, there's also an audio version that I recorded as the narrator, and that's available on audio, Audible and then also on the the Apple platforms, uh, iTunes, I believe it's available there. So, yeah. uh, you know, if you Google His Last Shift, the playbook of Todd Davison, you should be able to find a, a place to buy it. And the shipping of Amazon's very quick and reliable. So that's been a great source. We'll put all that on MikeSimmery.com and of course will be during the course of the podcast. What are the last things you'd like to share with us, Wade? Well, I, I thank you very much for having me, but I just, I would encourage anyone who's listening, who is looking for a book that they're going to feel something real and um, that it's going to, I feel that just reading about Todd's story is really going to in, inspire you and motivate you to live the best life you could, best life you can today with everything you have and being grateful for your health and your family and your relationships and, and and all of that. So I would just encourage you if you're looking for a really good story about real life events of, of an incredible person, um, this is the book, this is the book for you. And I would, I'd love having readers. So that's all I can say. And I'd, I'd appreciate anyone that spends the time with the story. Well, let me add this as we close. I found it to be a page turner for a variety of reasons. One, I've always liked hockey. It's a story about family and brothers. And I played hockey with one of my brothers. The other one is younger. It's a story of overcoming. I mean, that that the comeback of a lifetime, when you wrote about the comeback of a lifetime, that was one of the times I teared up. There were a couple of times I teared up in this book because of your brother and how you wrote about it and how you honored him and your family in the, in the writing. And I also like the way you worked the importance of the, the faith component for, for Todd. And I, I don't want to say for family, cause I don't know that, but for, for Todd, it's a great book. Thank you for writing it. It couldn't have been easy. I'm sure. Um, and lastly, what a way to let people know how much you loved your brother. Thank you for writing it, Wade. Thank you for reading. And thank you for the kind, very kind words. Uh, it means a lot when people pick it up. It was pounds of tears were shed on these pages as I was typing it up, but it's all worth it now, especially when people are inspired by it. So thank you for 
spending time with it and for having me today. Thank you for joining me. You take good care. Thank you, Mike.